Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo, and you are listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colburn. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Tonight, I'm honored to welcome the incredible Kay Hanley, lead singer of Letters to Cleo to the show. Kay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk music with me today. I'm happy to be here, Brian. Well, I'd like to start by asking you the same question I ask all of my first-time guests, and that is, what does the word mixtape mean to you? Oh. It means romance and excitement and puppy love and friendship and, yeah, all good things. But it reminds me of my youth. (laughs) 100%. Now, my wife is from New Hampshire, and she assisted me with this next pronunciation so that my New Jersey accent didn't shine through. Letters to Cleo hails from, and I'll pause for a minute, Dorchester, Massachusetts. That one's pretty good. Thank you very much. And because of such, the band will always be connected to the Boston music scene. Can you talk about what that scene was like in the early 90s when the band was up and coming and how it's changed and evolved over the years since? Oh, that's a great question. Yes. I mean, my entire ethos as a creative person, as a songwriter, is informed by my you know, being raised in the Boston music scene in my teens and 20s. Back then, we had two major radio stations, two major market radio stations, WBCN and WFNX, that played local music. And not like, I mean, that we had like local music shows on Sunday nights, but like bands weren't relegated to just that. It's like you would hear local bands at drive time or at lunch, like during regular hours. And DJs had carte blanche to play whatever they wanted. And so you could be like a famous rock band within the 128 belt loop without ever leaving Massachusetts, you know? And that was really cool. We also had, aside from that, maybe even more popular were all of the college radio stations, you know, MIT and... BU, WERS from Emerson. These radio stations had were hugely influential. Everybody listened to them. And even when bands like big major international bands would fly through the college radio stations while they were doing that, like their press tours and stuff like that. And then we had this incredible zine scene which were the independent zines that were like mimeographed and stapled together. And like you would be able to get them on these stands at like the Middle East or TT, the Bears. It was basically what I'm trying to say is that the ecosystem for like being creative and being a local band was it was so supportive and it just intoxicating to be a part of. And I was a massive fan 
of local bands before I was in one myself. Well, I can't believe the next sentence is actually coming out of my mouth, but this year marks the 30th anniversary of the band's debut album, Aurora Gorealis, which was originally released on Cherry Disc Records in 1993 and re-released in 1994 on Giant Records, a major label. A few months back, I talked with Will Turpin of Collective Soul, whose band had a very similar experience as Letters to Cleo as their debut album, Hints, Allegations, and Things Left Unsaid, was first released on Atlanta, Georgia record label Rising Storm Records in 1993, the band hailed from Atlanta, and then Atlantic Records picked it up and re-released it in 1994. Now, this is similar to Letters to Cleo as Cherry Disc Records was based out of Boston and you guys followed the same 93-94 path. So can you talk about how Giant Records discovered Aurora and what the transition was like for the band to go from a local Boston indie label to a major label all within the same album cycle? Yeah, that's that, that's a great question. I did not know that Collective Soul had shared the same 93, 94 trajectory with us. That's very interesting. That's my music nerd. I'm coming out here. I apologize. Yeah, I love it. That's great. <laughs> That's great. It's good to have like the context. And I feel like a lot of bands at that time, you know, it was just a very vital time for alternative rock music and indie pop. And the major labels were, you know, circling And like bands like mine were like getting signed at that time. So for Letters to Cleo, I mean, we we weren't really at least I'll speak for myself. I was not very careerist. I didn't even know that being in a band could be a career. That wasn't really part of my plan. Um, I loved being in my band, but we toured a lot. You know, like we would you know, I would work a double shift at the restaurant on Thursday and then Thursday night we would get in the van and drive overnight to New York. And then on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we'd play like New York, Philly. And so we were like touring a lot in our van and we made it down to South by Southwest in 93 after Aurora came out. And South by Southwest back then was, well, you remember. Yeah, it was the destination. <laughs> was, yeah, I mean, it was it was very different than what it is now. And so- the first two times we got to South by Southwest in 91 and 92, our shows had been canceled. And oh. so I know like and we were like out on the road and it would take a lot for us to go out on the road. Like we did not have money. You know, we were paying for it ourselves. We were giving ourselves, you know, $10 a day per diems and we <laughs> facing our entire tours around like Cracker Barrel maps. And <laughs> Because we knew exactly how much we could eat at Cracker Barrel for exactly how much money. And we would eat, you know, it's just, it was just different times. No cell phones, no internet. And so we find, we got to our 93 showcase at South by Southwest. And uh, Steve White from Billboard had decided to review the Cherry Disc version of Aurora Gorealis on the cover of Billboard the week of our showcase at South by Southwest that year. Wow. And we were like, what the fuck? <laughs> and Michael Creamer, our manager, and Larry Webman, our booking agent, like took the billboard, 
ran down to Kinko's, mimeographed a bunch of <laughs> copies and like ran back to the Four Seasons, which is where all the, you know, executive A&R people would have their expense, dr- you know, would be drinking all day on their expense accounts and like handed out covers of our. Now, Veruca Salt was like the big band that year. They were like the ones that were on fire that year. So we were not, we were just like kind of nobodies and Veruca Salt was getting all the fire. So it was like, really cool that we were able to just like generate some kind of interest. And as it turned out, we had some fans by then because we toured a lot. So like we had some fans and also the nascent internet. We had a lot of like internet. The internet was very new. Mm-hmm. And um, so we did have the internet and we had uh, there were like these college boards that people had started talking about our band on. You know, there were just, it was very, very, very nerdy at the time. And, and not many people were like in these chat rooms, but like some of them were talking about letters to Cleo. So we actually had some people at our show and the A&R people came to the show and we ended up getting taken out to our first meal from a major label. Um, oh my gosh, why am I spacing on his name? I'm going to have to get back to you on this, but he's from RCA. And took us out to breakfast and then kind of like the label started calling and we ended up going with Giant Records. Uh, Jeff Aldrich flew out to Boston to take us out. For, now, like my favorite thing in the world still to this day is like when some big shot pays for my lunch. Like I just love that. <laughs> there's nothing I love more or like free snacks. Like I just like I'm still in like poverty mode, even though <laughs> I'm a grown ass person. Like I still just like love when people pay for my food. Um, <laughs> and so we got a lot of free meals and we ended up signing with Giant after they told us about their Melrose Place soundtrack that Amy Mann was going to be on the replacements and like all these bands that we loved. And we were like, we want to be on that. And little did we know what was going to happen. <laughs> from that decision. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon.
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Well, obviously that was Here and Now, track six on Aurora Gorealis for those of us who own the CD. God, dude, I didn't know what track it was. (laughs) (laughs) Went on to become the band's highest charting hit. And as far as I'm concerned, this song is an absolute musical snapshot of 93 and 94 between the radio play and then the placement on Melrose Place. Getting featured on TV and movie soundtracks in the 90s was kind of a different animal than it is today. However, there's no denying the impact that a TV or movie feature can have on the song. Having had experiences across the decades in both television and film, would you be able to talk about how that part of the business has kind of evolved? Um, Well, I can only say how it has impacted me. You know, I, I have no sense of how these things impact bands now. It's it's more to me, it seems more about like people will actually and this is not a criticism. I would not have done it this way, but like I understand why artists do it. People will write songs with the expressed motivation of getting a, you know, a Target commercial or an Apple ad, you know, like people will write songs with that in mind. That was absolutely anathema back in the 90s. And I don't, in retrospect, you know, we passed up a lot of money and clout that we could have had by saying no to commercials and things like that. But it seemed like we could do, you know, movie soundtracks and still retain our, you know, our dignity. And by the way, I'm kind of I'm using air quotes now because, you know, this is sort of like the insolence of you. Yes. You know, now that I have like kids and responsibilities, it's like, wow, I really wish I had that $10,000 from fucking Kool-Aid. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to swear? (laughs) Sure. Help yourself. (laughs) Like it was really silly the way I, you know, how proprietary I felt about the band's credibility. But that said... You know, being on movie soundtracks was something that Letters Cleo ended up doing quite a bit. You know, we ended up arguably more well-known for covering Cheap Trick on the roof in the final scene of 10 Things I Hate About You mm-hmm. than for Here and Now. You know, there were a lot of people that when the band kind of reformed in 2015, we were shocked at how many fans we had from movies that came out after the band broke up that never thought that they would see us. And we were just like, where did all these these new people come from? <laughs> and it was from soundtrack stuff, from the craft, from Josie and the Pussycats, for sure. Yeah. 
And we're definitely going to touch on those. But right now, I want to stick with Aurora Gorealis because this past weekend, I listened to the album front to back to kind of put me in the right mindset for tonight's conversation. And the first thing that came to my mind as somebody who heard the album in 1993 and I'm listening to it again in 2023 was how Letters to Cleo had such a unique and unmistakable energy about their music. And it's that energy that lives and breathes throughout all the songs on the album, such as Big Star, Rim Shack, Wasted, Get On With It. I could pretty much pick out any song here as an example. But when you listen to the album with three decades of hindsight, coupled with the unique perspective of being someone who, as the liner notes read, sings and plays a little guitar on the album, I'd love to know what the first thing that comes to mind for you is. Well, you're assuming that I'm listening to this record at all, (laughs) which I am not. (laughs) You know, here's part one of the answer. I have never really listen to any Letters to Cleo albums. Wow. I can't stand. And it's changed now. Like Now that I like, you know, write music for other people, for, you know, for other stuff for a living, I don't mind it now. But back in those days, the sound of my own voice absolutely horrified me. I could not listen to our records at all. Be that as it may, this is part two, going, you know, rehearsing this, you know, we're getting ready to rehearse the song. So obviously, like I have to go through and look at the lyrics and stuff like that. I And it's interesting, you know, with so much time in the rear view, thinking about what it was like to be able to write songs at 20, 21, 22, and just having these incredible snapshots of who I was at that time and how how much I've changed, how much I haven't changed. I'm so grateful for that. You know, people who are that age now are going to look back at their Instagrams and their, you know, the photos in their phones or on their computers. And, and I don't have any of that. Like I don't have a lot of photographs of myself doing all the dumb shit that I did. <laughs> when, but I do. Thank God for that. I don't but, either. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? I cannot imagine. I acted such a fool back in those. I can't imagine that stuff being preserved for forever. <laughs> um, but I do have these songs that I wrote with my band and the five of us, you know, in a rehearsal space, fleshing out these ideas and putting my lyrics to music or putting lyrics to their music, whatever the case may be. It's just like such an unbelievable gift to myself later on. Now, when you guys are practicing these songs for your upcoming handful of East Coast tour dates to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the album, do you find yourself going back and kind of feeling that energy from the lyrics and from the songs as you originally wrote them? Like, is it a time capsule for you when you start singing one of the songs, you're instantly 22 again back on stage in Boston? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the byproduct is also being able to like sing these songs with, with like they have new meaning as well as the old meaning. Like, like I said, like I, I haven't changed a whole lot, at least the, like the way I think, the way I process things. So it's interesting to be able to sing these songs with new perspective. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. It sure is. 
Well, in 1995, the band released Wholesale Meats and Fish, which was the first time the band recorded an album specifically for Giant. That record features amazing tunes and Letters to Cleo, Live Staples, Demon Rock, Pizza Cutter, Awake, and Fastway, again, just to name a few. Was there a different atmosphere and experience recording this album versus Aurora with a major label being involved from the start of the project? Um, that's I never thought of it that way. Most of the songs for Wholesale had been written by the time we because we started making that record in 94 sort of at the end of 94 and like i said earlier we were road dogs we were on the road like any new song that we had like instantly went into the set and we didn't have that pressure of like oh you have to have the record before you play it's like you would introduce your new songs because that's the only way that people would get to know the new songs <laughs> right yeah and so the songs had already been well road tested we were making that album again with mike Deneen, who had been you know producing our records and our songs for years by then and so it didn't really feel that different except for we got to fly to like la and do pre-production with Deneen at like ocean way in hollywood and you know like so we had a budget and of course, we didn't realize that that, that was all our money. <laughs> and and uh, we didn't understand how the math really worked. We were just like, Ooh, we get to fly on, the, fly on an airplane and record music somewhere else. You know, and that seemed very novel. It was very novel to us. I mean, it felt really like, Ooh, this is like cool. This is like it was exactly what we thought being on a major label would be like, you know. And most of our friends' labels were in New York, but ours was in L.A., so we would like... Anyway. Um, <laughs> so if the question is, did we feel the pressure of that major label pressure? We didn't, because like I said, most of the songs had been written and road-tested already, and they didn't really get in the way. There were some, you know, flags that were thrown up that I... You know, our A&R guy, Jeff Aldrich, kind of like took me aside and asked me if I wanted to write, if I would be willing to write songs with like songwriters that were not in the band. And I was like, no. And so I refused that. But he didn't push either. He wasn't he wasn't like he was like, all right. And they released the record early because we wanted them to, you know, the label and our attorney wanted to go with. I see as the second single from Aurora Gorealis, but I was really sick of I see and pushed them to put out wholesale meats and fish early. And they did, even though that was a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> what did we know? What did I know? Nothing. I knew nothing. That's okay though. It's all art. There's no right or wrong answers at the end of the day. No, I have no complaints. Thirty all these years later, I have no complaints about the way we conducted our careers. Well, here's an interesting spin in your career. In 1996, you performed alongside Gary Sharon of Extreme in the Boston Rock Opera's performance of Jesus Christ Superstar as Mary Magdalene. Yes. I would love to know what the transition was like for you as a singer to jump from the live band stage to a theater production stage and what you personally took away from that experience. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's such a great question. 
you know, this was a Boston rock opera production. So again, it was very local, but it was with like a lot of people from the Boston music, like another part of the Boston music scene with people that I like didn't know. So they asked our manager, Creamer, if I would be interested in doing this role. And I had heard about the production. They had been already been doing it for a couple of years at the Middle East downstairs. And so I knew about the company. I knew about the production. And I was like, I think I would like to do that. We had some time off and it was scary. It was really intimidating to like go in and like all of these people were even though it was Boston rock opera, so it wasn't sort of like this theater <laughs> group, you know, it it wasn't musical theater nerds, but like the punk rock ones, mm-hmm. you know. So it was really, it was really intimidating. And then we ended up, I had the best, best time. And I, you know, I understand why people get really into, like addicted to theater because you become a family in those productions, you know, through rehearsals and and then the the camaraderie that you develop like backstage while you're doing this thing. It's like, oh, it's absolutely intoxicating. And I loved every minute of it. Gary and I had the best time. Um, you know, we became very good friends and, you know, and I still to this day have friends from that production that I will have for the rest of my life. That's amazing. In 1997, the band released Go, and this is the first Letters to Cleo album to feature Tom Polche on drums. And mm-hmm. this album features another batch of amazing tunes, including Co-Pilot, the title track, Disappear, and Anchor, which is the track I'd like to touch on because this track features a Boston musical legend, if I may call him that, Greg Hawks of the Cars, uh-huh. who plays keyboards on this song. I'd love to know the story behind Greg's appearance on the track and what it meant for you on a musical and personal level coming from Boston as well. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love Greg. He's such a wonderful, beautiful weirdo. (laughs) The reason that, well, we became friends with him because we recorded going, this is a callback to our talk about soundtracks. We recorded Dangerous Type for the Craft soundtrack. and. Back then, those movie studio budgets were like, nah. And so we, <laughs> we, we called Greg, you know, we, we didn't call him because we didn't know him. But we were like, you know, I wonder if Greg Hawks would come out here and play keys on Dangerous Type. And so we got in touch with him somehow. And he said yes. And he flew out to L.A. and recorded Dangerous So we became friends with him then at that point and we were just like we want to be friends with you all the time so when we were <laughs> when we were making go it was such an obvious choice to get him to and since then he's he's like played live with us and he's just such a great guy well the cars self-titled is my personal favorite album of all time i've talked about it a ton on this show it's a genre defining album mixing yes new wave punk rock and all this stuff together as well as this between rick and ben this lyrical style that is this very happy poppy music with some darker tones which i see kind of ingrained throughout the letters to cleo career and in your songwriting as well so back in 1994 i took my then girlfriend to see the craft in the theater and when the movie's playing and dangerous type comes on 
having grown up with the cars, I'm sitting in the seat singing along kind of under my breath with the lyrics of the song. And my girlfriend at the time actually thought that I had seen the movie without her already. Oh uh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> did not realize that I was just, it, it, the song caught me. And as soon as the movie was over, we went right to the mall and I grabbed the soundtrack and I've owned it ever since. I'd love to hear the story behind how Dangerous Type, a Cars cover song, which that wasn't a major hit for the band. That was on Candio and it was never released as a single, but it is a fan favorite. And now I finally get to ask, after decades of kind of just wondering about this, how did Letters to Cleo choose Dangerous Type for the craft? The story behind that song begins and ends with this guy named Ralph Saul, who in the 90s, he'd been a TV executive at Fox, but also like a massive music fan, like he, like real, real deal music fan. And he sort of like identified this need in the movie space. There was a, as you remember, there were a lot of sort of like young adult film. Like that was like the big thing in the yes. 90s. And he sort of like, he became the go-to person for movie soundtracks. He basically, I think one of the first things he did was actually um, getting all of his favorite bands to do covers of schoolhouse rock songs. Oh yeah, I remember that comp. Yeah, with Blind Melon and everything, yeah. of course. So Ralph did that. He got all of it. And so the way that he would get to meet his favorite bands was to hire them to get these like big, you know, movie budget and hire all of his favorite bands to do covers for these movie soundtracks. And if you go back, you will see that thread throughout the 90s of like all these cover songs being performed by all the bands in the 90s. And so so he was the one who hired us for 10 Things I Hate About You as well. I'm not sure if Dangerous Type was his idea or our idea. You know, when we would do these things for Ralph, we just like a lot of, we'd record a lot of songs and some of them would be our idea. Some of them would be his idea. So I'm not sure whose idea that was. But obviously, no matter whose it was, we were on board 100%. 100% here as well, because when we had an episode on 90s movie soundtracks, spoiler alert, one of my choices was Dangerous Type from The Craft because of how much the cars and your version means to me. It's just such an incredible <laughs> yeah. cover. I talk about cover songs all the time because I'm a big fan of an artist taking a song that's already kind of ingrained in somebody's musical DNA and putting their own spin on it and making it a unique piece of art that pays homage to the original. And I love what you bring to the cover songs that Letters to Cleo has done over the years. So that's a perfect transition into my next question, because on the Spirit of 73 Rock for Choice compilation, the band covered a song that is literally ingrained in my musical DNA because before I was born, my mother has told me many a times throughout the years that when she was pregnant with me every night before bed, she would put her headphones on and listen to Fleetwood Mac's rumors before going to bed. No way. So that is another one of my favorite albums of all time because I had already pretty much known it before I knew how to talk. I was always impressed with letters to Cleo's ability to bring a level of heft to the songs that you were covering while still maintaining the integrity of the original. And to do that on a track like Dreams 
is quite a balance because you're adding this intensity to a song that's very dreamy, but somehow you made all the pieces of the puzzle fit perfectly. And I absolutely love this cover and would love to hear what it means for you singing this because listening to your vocals, I hear that this song meant something to you in that performance. Oh man, I forgot all about that. Thank you for asking about this particular song. First of all, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of heavy to think about, you know, the spirit of 73 was for abortion rights. And yes. at that time, women, it never even occurred to my generation that um, that right was under the kind of threat that it actually was facing down in the next couple of decades. And the idea mm -hmm. that weight has been, you know, we're living in a time where that has been struck down and many women are not able to access a basic human right, which is to healthcare, is is shocking. So we we didn't even, it's kind of quaint. <laughs> you know, we were fighting for a right that we did not understand was under such threat. So that aside, you know, that being the context, we chose that song because we loved it. And we had started record at the time our tour schedule was insane. And I did not have any respect for this instrument, my voice. And so, you know, I was drinking and smoking and screaming and blah, and like talking to fans after the show and before the show and staying out all night. And I lost my voice at the beginning of the tour. And I tried to record the vocal several times for that song. And finally we got to LA and it was like, it was the deadline was passed and we had to turn the song in. And at the time you couldn't, you know, it's like you had to go to a studio that you had to like, we had to carry the tapes with us yes. and like, <laughs> you know, put the two inch tapes on the studer and like, so it was an ordeal to like book a studio and like get in. So we got to LA, I forget which one. And my voice is trashed. I could not sing at all, at all. Wow. And it's interesting to hear that because actually I can listen to that performance because it's like you can hear just like the pain of me trying to like, like I never sang that softly or and like I've I've never had a performance on before or since that sounds like that. And it's horrible, but it's also kind of awesome. See, I never I, it's amazing how that context changes, because as somebody who didn't know that story, I just always listen to that as a kind of heartfelt, emotive delivery of the song. It was heartfelt. It was like I was singing it with every fiber of like every to get every note out took everything I had. And so it was both physical, like me struggling to get the song out, but also the words took on a different meaning than because I, I couldn't rely on my instrument the way I normally would. So I chose every note very carefully because with intention because I had to. Because I, I couldn't talk at all. Like, if I were to talk, it would sound like this. Oh, wow. So, like, the fact that I got any notes to resonate at all was, like, <laughs> it's, 
Yeah. Wow. Well, as soon as we're done with this interview, the first thing I'm doing is listening to that with all this in hindsight now. Unbelievable. I can't wait to go back and listen now. (laughs) Well, we've talked about it before. The next two covers are from the hit comedy, 10 Things I Hate About You, which starred Julia Stiles, Heath Ledger, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. The band had two covers on the soundtrack. You mentioned one of them, Cheap Tricks, I Want You to Want Me, and the other being Nick Lowe's Cruel to Be Kind. In the 90s, and... To some extent, even the early part of the aughts, soundtracks were a big, big deal. Bands were competing for just a single slot on a soundtrack release. Not only did Letters to Cleo have two songs appear on the 10 Things soundtrack, you also had two other songs appear in the movie, Come On, which the band had released early 2000s time capsule moment here as a free MP3 download as well as Copilot, which was on the album Go. How did the band become such a huge musical connection? Because that's four <laughs> slots in one soundtrack. That's unheard of. What? Uh, you are you really do your homework. This is, the, this is an unbelievable <laughs> question. I will tell you how that happened. I mean, Ralph Saul, of course, called us in to uh, a little funny backstory to this. I had decided around that time that I was going to quit the biz. I was going to study to become a sommelier. And, you know, I was really, really into wine. And so I was going to, this was the career path that I was going to be on. I was going to quit the music business. I had started working for this like very, very important wine store in Boston on Newberry Street. And I was learning the wine business. And we got a call from Ralph Saul asking us to come out to LA and do a couple of songs for this movie that was being made. And we were like, so I had to tell the wine store that I needed the weekend off because we were going to, you know, go and do a couple of songs for this. I needed to fly out to LA to do a couple of songs for this thing. And the wine store was like, sure, go ahead. And so off we went. So we get to LA to Ocean Way, which was just such a legendary studio. It's not Ocean Way anymore. It's united i think but we get out there and we just start recording songs and we recorded a bunch of songs and i don't remember what some of them were but then while we were there the director of 10 things i hate about you called ralph and was like hey i need a band for these scenes and blah 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 and and ralph was like well letters to cleo's here in la they were up in seattle making the movie letters to cleo's here recording songs do you want them and he's like send me a picture and so ralph sent him a picture and and uh he's like they look great send them up so the next thing you know we're like on a plane to seattle to like shoot scenes in the movie and all of these actors at the time were unknown except for joseph gordon levitt who had been on third rock in the sun but the rest of them were on like heath was complete this was his first american movie Julia, um, Larissa, my favorite, who actually was, I think she had a hand in getting Letters to Cleo on the soundtrack in the first place. She vouched for us when Ralph was like, because she was a fan of the band. And anyway, so I called the wine store and I was like, I think I'm not coming back. So, <laughs> so I never went back to the wine store. I went up to Seattle, shot scenes for the movie, went back to L.A., did. The, so we basically like lived in L.A. between L.A. and Seattle for like a month. It was great. Basically, it was a pretty bunch thing. Like we fit the suit. 
That's unbelievable. And then Mm -hmm. right after that, in 2001, you personally, you mentioned this earlier, sang all the vocals for the part of Josie in Josie and the Pussycats movie. And you also had a hand in writing some of the songs, such as Shapeshifter and Come On, with songs like Three Small Words and Pretend to Be Nice, even going as far as to making it into Letters to Cleo live shows. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about this experience and how it had differed from what you had done with letters to Cleo up to this point. All right. Well, you win the gold medal for all my favorite questions. Uh, (laughs) I'm not done yet either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the Josie and the Pussycats, I mean, the top line is that that experience literally changed my life in every conceivable way. My friend Dave Gibbs from the Gigalawants, who actually the Gigalawants are reforming to support Letters to Cleo on our tour in November. Love it. Um, so, yeah, it's so awesome. So they're like our brother band. And Dave Gibbs was out in L.A. writing songs with Deb and Harry, the directors of Josie and the Pussycats. And they had already hired a Josie and Babyface, who was producing the movies for the film. Um, he had hired a Josie. And Dave was, oh, my God, you need to get my friend Kay to sing the voices of the Pussycats. She'd be perfect. And they were like, sure, bring her out. And they, you know, Deb and Harry knew Letters to Cleo. So that that was helpful. You know, just even having one hit in your life is very helpful in getting people (laughs) to, like, return phone calls or, you know, you can parlay it into many different things, it turns out, I learned later. So I've had um, my ex-husband... Cleo bandmate, Michael Eisenstein. We had had our first child. Uh, Zoe Mabel was 11 months old when we flew out to LA to, you know, we still, I was planning to live in Boston for the rest of my life and that didn't happen, but we flew out to LA and I started showing up at the studio to be the voices of the Pussycats. In the meantime, they had started like testing the singer that they had hired to be Josie with, with Rachel Lee Cook's, you know, performance. And it just didn't make any, her voice was so good. The woman that they had hired, like so good and so big. And so, and it just didn't make any sense coming out of Rachel's mouth. So it kind of left me in position. Like I was there. So I'm a very lucky person. Like I just end up in the right place and the right time a lot. It's really weird. And, and so I was able to kind of it's a longer story, but like I was able to swoop in and get the job of Josie, which was amazing. And then working with Babyface, it was the first time I'd ever been hired to do something for my voice. I did not consider myself a singer at all. Um, I I thought of myself as like the singer of Letters to Cleo because I wrote the lyrics and melody. Like who else was going to do it? So like I was this, I just thought that I yelled really loud and kind of hit the notes. And I was hired to like be a singer on this project. And then I saw the way Babyface conducted his creative life. And it was so inspiring to me. And it wasn't so much about the money. It was about the fact that people paid him for his work, for his creative work. And he was very smart about like he was a consummate business person, but he was also a consummate artist. And I was like, I want to do that like I want to go behind the scenes and like be creative and be a business person like that finally was the first time that it clicked for me that like this is what I'm supposed to be doing 
Well, I can't picture that soundtrack without your voice on it. I just have to say that. Me either. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to touch on someone who you worked with on this film and on the soundtrack, who's sadly no longer with us. The amazing mm-hmm. Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne, who wrote the song Pretend to Be Nice for the film and was also one of your co-writers on Come On. I would love to ask what it was like working with him on this project, as I always felt he was an extremely talented and gifted songwriter and performer. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I did not work with Adam on Pretend to Be Nice. I recorded that with Babyface. I knew, of course, that Adam wrote it, but I had no idea how talented he was until after I did all the songs for the movie itself with Babyface a few months later after I was, you know, and when I got back to Boston a few months later, Babyface, or I don't know who it was, but maybe Deb and Harry's people said that they wanted to make a soundtrack for the movie. And then... Adam was chosen to produce the rest of the songs. And he worked at Q Division with Mike Deneen, who was Cleo's producer and was Fountains of Wayne's producer. Ah. So the three of us holed up in a studio at Q Division Studios, which was Deneen's studio. And I had the most amazing honor. And like, I've never laughed so hard in my life as I did in the the month that we were recording the song that Adam, Mike, and I were doing the songs for Josie, for the rest of, for the Josie soundtrack. It was unbelievable. And then fast forward when we were doing, there was uh, Mondo Records did a 20-year anniversary of the release of the soundtrack. And there was like, a, in LA, there was a screening of the film there was a Q&A with the actors and with me and Deb and Harry. And then we performed five songs from the soundtrack. And, you know, I was like, oh, you know what? We need to call Adam to play on Pretend to Be Nice because, like, we just have to. But then I was like, he's so, like, Adam's a really shy guy and he's kind of elusive. He's kind of mysterious. It's like, he, you know, so I was kind of like, oh, but uh, he's going he's gonna to say no. He's not going to want to do it. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going to ask him. And so I texted him and I was like, hey, we're doing this thing. You got to, you know, you want to play on it with us. And he was like, instantly was like, fuck, yes. (laughs) And so like and he came down to rehearse with us and he played the show with us and he was so psyched. And I'm so glad that I did that because. Because he died the following year. and. I'm so glad I didn't miss the chance to spend that time with him. And I'm so glad that I ignored that voice that was like insecure about whether he would want to do that or not, because he did want to. And we got to spend that time. That was the last time that I got to spend with him. And I'm so fucking grateful for that. I can't even begin to imagine how that impacted someone who knew him personally, because even though I didn't know him personally, I knew him through his music and it hit me extremely hard. I don't want to continue to stay on this topic for too long, but I feel like this is important to bring up. In 2020, you covered one of Adam's songs, one of my favorite Fountains of Wayne songs ever for the 2020 compilation Saving for a Custom Van which was released exclusively on Bandcamp with 100% of the proceeds going towards the Music Cares COVID-19 Relief Fund. And you brought such a unique, 
almost new wave spin to radiation vibe. And there's such a joy that shines through in your rendition. I'd love (laughs) to hear why you decided upon that song for this benefit. Well, that song was just so, I mean, that was the first song of Fountains of Wayne I ever heard on WFNX. And I was just, what is this? And I was instantly a Fountains of Wayne fan when I heard that song. So we were holed up during COVID, my husband and I. And so he's, my husband, Clayton James, is um, is a big synth nerd. And, um, and uh you know, we there was no getting out to studios at the time. And he and I had been recording stuff for like other COVID related projects. So it was um it was a natural choice for me to 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 record the song with him. And uh and this was the first song that we ever like built from scratch together. And um and so his all of those like s- dark synthy choices, all of that was like totally clay's production and um and uh, so i like i give him all the credit for the creative direction that we we took for that song and because i never would have you know i'm not a synth person at all and um and i've only really come to appreciate the art form because of you know marrying this guy who is (laughs) somewhere in the house um so yeah so that, that was that that was how that happened well, it's an amazing version, and I'm going to post a link to that Bandcamp page over at myweeklymixtape.com for anyone to go listen and support that compilation as well. So I have two young ladies. One is 14 and one is 10, and both growing up, both of them were obsessed with Doc McStuffins, with my older one even dressing up as her for Halloween. And I could probably still sing you the I Feel Better song to this day if you were to challenge me to that. I would love to know how this opportunity came about for you and your songwriting partner for this, Michelle Lewis, as well as what the challenges are in writing songs that are aimed at kids, but balancing the fact that adults like myself are watching these shows as well. Yeah, well, I mean, my my career, this is where I have landed, is in animation. This is my day job. This is what I will hopefully do for the rest of my career is writing songs for TV animation. I absolutely love it. Michelle and I met out here in LA and we became writing partners because we just like, as soon as we met, we like we were just creative magnets and we had a million ideas and we were like, let's do this, let's do that, let's do this. And one of the things that we we did in those early years as writing partners was we created and sold a couple of TV shows to Disney, a couple of kids shows. None of them went anywhere, but we became known at Disney as people who could write music for this space. And one of our sort of like our mantra is we do not write children's songs because we don't. I've never written a children's song in my life. I write songs that I would record for myself. The opportunity to write for Doc McStuffins came as an offer to actually consult on the music for that show. And again, like the people that they originally wanted to do it, it just wasn't working out, which placed me and Michelle in this amazing position to be able to take the job. So that was our first series that we had, even though a few years before that, I had done music for Care Bears and then Letters to Cleo had done Generation O in 1999. And so like I'd had like a little experience doing a series, but this was Michelle's and my 
first series. And we've been doing it ever since. You know, Chris Need, the creator of the show, had a very specific point of view that really informed our, that was really, you know, like our music adapted very well to her storytelling. And so I think the combination was what was very chewy and like we could really sink our teeth into her stories and write music that felt authentic to us. Well, now I want to talk about a project that was released earlier this year that's extremely unique. You and Tom Polche co-wrote the music to an episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds in season two. The episode is called Subspace Rhapsody and is a Star Trek musical. Now, I'm not a Trekkie by any means, but I'm very familiar with the movies and some of the series. Apologies to Star Trek fans listening. Please don't turn off the episode now. But considering (laughs) how passionate the Star Trek fan base is, what was your Mm -hmm. mindset when you and Tom sat down to write songs for this episode? Did you have a script or at least some working knowledge of the story? Or did they just say, hey, we're doing a Star Trek episode. Go. Right. Kind of. Well, Tom is a staff composer for Paramount. So okay. he actually worked with Schlesinger on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So nice. he he like he's kind of involved in all of the TV music for Paramount or formerly CBS television. So when Tom, when they were conceiving this, now Strange New Worlds is a prequel to the Star Trek cinematic universe. And it's also kind of known for its humor and it's, you know, it, it really is a throwback to the storytelling wise, to the, the one-off stories of the original Star Trek. I did not know this at the time. I know all of this now. I was not a Trekkie, although I have very warm memories of watching Star Trek with my dad on Channel 38 WSBK in Boston in the 70s when I was a child. So like you, like we all, it's in the ether, like, you know, the main characters, you know, the world in a general way. We all do. Tom was called in as a kind of like to give his thoughts on how they could make this work. And so Tom, you know, gave his recommendations. He actually recommended me and Michelle and Dan as someone, you know, he was recommending teams that could do songs for it they were at originally they were just going to go out to a bunch of different teams for specific songs and then at some point they said to tom like hey would would you want to do this and tom was like think i do want to do this (laughs) so he kind of like scrapped they scrapped all the the conversations that they had been having and tom called me and asked me if i would be interested in being his lyricist on this thing which i was very interested in that And then we ended up just writing all the songs together and collaborating on music and lyrics. And and that's how it happened. It was very, very intense. Five weeks of just like getting in the trenches. A lot of I've never done. I mean, I've never really done research for a songwriting project, at least not to this level. But this was like it was. We took it very, you know, we're New Englanders. We took it very seriously. We wanted to get an A on the assignment, you know, <laughs> and uh, and but with also knowing how important canon was to fans of the show, we could not dial any of it in. We took it all very seriously and we had pages. We knew what we were writing for as we were writing and the script was fleshed out more and more and more as we went. 
And it certainly pays off at the end when all is said and done. (laughs) Thank you. This October, Letters to Cleo released two brand new songs, and I want to touch on those and play a clip of each. First up is Bad Man, which musically has a very upbeat and ethereal vibe, but lyrically tells a completely different story. And It's Sunny Outside, which is musically soaring yet playful and contrasted lyrically. Sunny days are the best. Wear a flowery, adorable dress. Get up and get out. Go walk about and telegraph all your success. Cause if I don't, somebody else will steal the job I want. And I'll die alone, zero sum to death. And don't come. That's something we mentioned earlier in our discussion, and it's something I've always admired about Letters to Cleo, because the music and lyrics often paint a different picture, depending on how one chooses to listen to the song via the music or via the lyrics. You can enjoy Letters to Cleo's music on multiple levels. When you're writing these new songs, does the music or lyrical content come first? And how do you decide to create that, for lack of a better word, tension between the music and the lyrics? I don't try. That's just how it comes out. My upbringing as like just like listening to pop music on AM radio made me just like this relentlessly like melodic writer. So like my melodies are very sing-alongable. It's like in very sort of like, I just can't help it. Like my melodies are just very happy. And I never, I very rarely write about happy stuff. And if I do, it's like from the point of view of a character. But if I'm writing from the point of view of myself, it's always going to be miserable. (laughs) That's just my, it's just the way my, my subconscious mind and my conscious mind work together. Well, the end product is fantastic. So keep that up. And putting my news reporter cap on for one second, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if these singles were part of some larger forthcoming Letters to Cleo album, or is the band just focusing right now on releasing singles as inspiration strikes? Um, You are very perceptive. Um, (laughs) This is uh, Michael and I had been getting together before the pandemic for like these 90 minute writing sessions. And then we would like, Greg would send musical ideas to us from where he was. And we were sort of like working remotely before we had to work remotely. And so Michael and I would write for 90 minutes. And then a week later, we'd record for 90 minutes. And we kind of got in this flow of like once a week, just getting together with the idea that we were making a Clio record. 
And we were talking to Adam Schlesinger about producing it because he was the only person that we could imagine after Mike Deneen died of cancer five, six years ago, five years ago. And we, so Adam was going to produce the new record because who else would? And the pandemic hit while we were kind of like really hitting our stride with everything. And as you remember, Adam died mm-hmm. was one of the, you know, he died on April 1st, I think, of 2020. It was very soon after the pandemic hit. And we just like, it just took the wind right out of our, we were just like, and then the pandemic itself was like very disorienting. And so we kind of just like put it on the back burner. And then this year we're like, all right, let's pick these songs back up. Let's just try this again. And so these were the first songs that we had kind of written from that batch back that Adam was going to produce. And so, yes, there's stuff in the it's just it's more a matter of we've got an album's worth of material written. It's more about finding the time to really give it the attention that it deserves. And having Bill Leffler produce this stuff was really a revelation. Like we've never, I love the sound of these songs. I've never heard a sound like this real. I mean, it still sounds like Cleo, but kind of different. And I love it. So I'm really looking forward now to working with Bill on more stuff. Well, I've been gushing over the last hour about my favorite songs from throughout your career. So now I want to turn the table for this last question just a little bit. If someone asked you to tell the story of Letters to Cleo using three songs from across the band's history, covers, originals, any of the music that you guys have performed, what three would you choose? My three favorite Cleo songs. Number one, Veda Very Shining, for sure. That's from Go. The Wuss song I love from Wholesale. And then Here and Now. Well, Kay, this has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape. Brian, thank you for all the great questions. It was a pleasure to speak with you as well. Remember, mixtapers, head over to myweeklymixtape.com to hear all the songs we've discussed in the episode through the playlist embedded on the episode page. You can also head to myweeklymixtape.com to hear the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 